Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. So glad you could join us tonight. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you and, and with the cool authors that I get to have on the show. want to first thank uh, Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. As always, please check him out. Google him, Ken Quiethawk. He's a native storyteller. He and his wife do an amazing job of preserving that ancient tradition of preserving history and folklore by telling stories. A lot happened before the written word happened, and some of it was probably a lot more effective than the written word has begun, become. So tonight's show, I'm so excited about this. We're talking about one of my favorite topics. <clears throat> Clearing throat here. Why should we care about fairy tales and folk tales? The Grimm brothers were meticulous in collecting their tales and yet, Disney and others have shamelessly softened and altered the core of these great stories. In the process, the spiritual values have been lost, and so tales that were once filled with meaning have become entertainment for seven-year-olds. We can, if we know what to look for, find this spiritual core and be enriched by it. Of particular interest is the concept of the six archetypes of human development, which are evident in the tales and which are powerful signposts of spiritual development available to all of us, if we care to look for it. Ellen Hunter's work explores the, at the intersections of literature, memoir writing, ancient wisdom, and the ways of the heart. He has spent much of his professional life exploring how literature and storytelling, including soap operas, tap into the deep and unarticulated needs of society, and especially the ways of the heart. It is from these powerful influences that we shape our lives and ultimately our destiny. He is a professor of literature and a counselor with a doctoral degree from Oxford University. British by birth, he traveled extensively in Europe, India, Africa, and Peru before settling down in Boston. I became acquainted with him because of one of his books that, that I absolutely, I love the title, and so I had to read it, and then I had to interview him. And the title of the book was Princes, Frogs, and Ugly Sisters. You know, 
my gosh, how could you avoid that one? He starts out his book with a Jewish um, teaching story, which I found fabulous, and it touched me to the core, and I'm going to make sure that I share it with as many people as I can. It's short but concise. Truth, naked and cold, had been turned away from every door in the village. Her nakedness frightened the people. When Parable found her, she was huddled in a corner, shivering and hungry. Taking pity on her, Parable gathered her up and took her home. There she dressed Truth in story, warmed her and sent her out again. Clothed in story, Truth knocked at the villagers' doors and was readily welcomed into people's houses. They invited her to eat at their table and to warm herself by their fire. And that is exactly what this this show tonight is about. It's about what was hidden in these tales that we took to heart for so long and didn't even realize that there was wisdom in there to be gathered. So I welcome to the show Alan Hunter. Welcome, Alan. Glad you're here. Oh, it's it's such a pleasure to be talking with you this evening, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, yes, that's uh, that's really the key of what I what I do. So thank you. Um, and you just have to ask a personal question. Yeah. Where did you? How did you come upon this theory, philosophy, technique? I mean, obviously, I don't think it was probably covered at Oxford. So where did you, where did you where did you uh, all of us most of us have have stumbled across the Grimm brothers one way or another mm. but but where did you pick up on the archetypes where did you pick up on how did you put how did I get this that philosophy from... <laughs> I mean ah. you know you have your arch, you know it it's you have the archetypes mm. and yes. you you have applied them to all of these amazing stories, and yes. I'm just blown away by, you know, how you came to focus on this this way. Yes, good question, and there's a bit of a, as a kind of a long answer, but uh, I, I was led to these things by circumstance. Um, so to take, you know, a, a thousand steps backwards. Um, okay. I was working with a very gifted student uh, at uh, the college that I worked at, Curry College at the time, and uh, we were looking at the therapeutic effects of telling one's story. And uh, this young woman had been writing her journals for for 12 or 13 years. So from the moment that she knew how to write, she was writing down stories, writing down, and she asked the questions. She said, well, how do you know when change occurs? And I thought, wow, that's a really good, that's a really good question. How do you know when change occurs? You have your 16th birthday, and that's supposed to be important. Uh, or you get your driving license, and that's supposed to be important. But how, how do we know that there's any inner change? And so this sent me looking uh, very, very carefully at, at literature, which in some senses is a very reliable uh, way to look at, uh, at the way character and people change, if only because 
you know, some of the great works of literature have been around for thousands of years. I mean, the Odyssey, you know, there's, there's 3,000 years of, of history right, right there. And people have looked at okay. it and said, oh, wow, there's something important here. There's something important. Let's tell this story. And they're still telling the story. So what is it that people agree is happening or that they somehow feel is happening? Well, um, what happened then was I started asking the same questions. What happens to the main figures in, in stories? Because story is the thing that twines itself around our heart that we remember long after we've forgotten other things. And gradually what uh, I discovered was that there were six really strong, identifiable turning points, if you like, or life stages, the six archetypes, as I called them, um, in one's life, and that these archetypes were mirrored in every piece of great literature that existed from Homer to, well, to, at the time it was Harry Potter, but, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was there over and over again. And I said, whoa, wait a second. You know, how come nobody's ever noticed this before? <laughs> and it is, you know, so it's in some ways I was, I was humbled by, in many ways I was humbled by what I discovered because there it was. It was like looking at a range of mountains and saying, oh, there's a range of mountains. Um, uh -huh. But they've always been here. I didn't make them. I didn't discover them. I just happened to see them. And that's what the six archetypes became. And actually, you know, I did uh, write a very long book about that called Stories We Need to Know, uh, Tracing your, your Life Path in Literature, because I think every piece of literature that has survived has survived because enough people have said, you know, there's something in this that rings true about how people grow up, how people reach wisdom. I mean, think about any, any book that you love. The characters tend to grow and change, and where do they get to? Now, that's a really long way of responding to your question, <laughs> but let's pin it down now to let's go to Cinderella. I mean, Cinder everybody, I think, knows the story of Cinderella in some form or another. So what happens in Cinderella? She starts off as this this lost and neglected kid that nobody wants and nobody likes and is confined to the ashes. But by the end of the story, she's reached this very high pinnacle. She's she's about to be married to the prince of the of the kingdom. Um so she's she's grown up to the point where she is ready to be married to the prince because the prince isn't a fool you know he's not he's not yeah. just uh, confused by what's going on he sees something in so what happens to her well not surprisingly she goes through several uh, of the six archetypes so she starts off and i'll, I'll if I, if i may can i just outline the six archetypes is that okay to do oh, that absolutely so? sure Okay. <laughs> well, um, I, I crave the indulgence of your listeners, but it will, it will take a little <laughs> bit of time. So there are, there are six. Oh, good. <laughs> there are six levels that we all go through and that characters go through in, in novels and stories and poems and plays. I mean, 
especially in Shakespeare, it's there loud and clear. But there are six levels, and the first is, you know, we, we're born, we're children, we're innocents, and so we, we arrive innocent and um, trusting and loving. That's what babies are good at, you know, they trust and they love. Um, mm-hmm. And you think, well, okay, fine, that's great, it happens to every baby. But let, wait a second, that may not sound like much, but try having a decent adult relationship later in life if you can't trust and love. So the innocent actually learns something really important right there you know, before he or she can even speak, and that lesson has to be held on to. Now, if we, if we flip back for a moment to Cinderella, what we're told is that she is loved by her mother, and then her mother dies, and her father remarries. Uh, but what she does in the, in the Grimm Brothers' tale, the original tale, which they were very specific about getting as right as they could, what she does is she goes to her mother's grave uh, very often, every day, in fact, and uh, weeps there. And you think, okay, well, fine. Uh, What that conveys to us in parable form is that whatever happens to her, she knows that she was loved. And that gives her strength, even in adversity. So that innocent self uh, is a life stage. We have to learn this and preserve that sense of trusting and loving as we grow. And of course, as we grow, we have to be a little careful about who we trust and love. So she is an innocent at first. Her mother dies and she becomes an orphan in, in more ways than one. I mean, her father is still alive, but he, he actually, in the, in the tale, he sort of ignores her and he refers to her as a, a poor kitchen drudge my wife left to me. I mean, oh. wow, that's the father... Uh, that's missing from Disney. The father figure is really not there at all. She, what we get in Disney is this um, beautiful child sort of flitting around the, 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 the palace. Uh, so then she becomes an orphan. And an orphan is a very interesting stage because we all go through it. Imagine, imagine you turn up for the first day of work at a new, a new place of work. You don't know how things are done. And so you look around and you say, who am I going to trust? Ah, there's that trust word again. Uh, Who am I going to listen to to find out how this job works? And if you're lucky, you trust people who are good. And if you're unlucky, you get people who are going to exploit you or, or, or belittle you. An orphan. An orphan has to attach to others in order to survive. Now, that's that's what we see on TV when we get those uh, those heartrending ads saying, "Please give to this part of Africa or India." You know, those, those little kids and bigger kids too, they have to join something, or they they probably will starve. And that's Cinderella. Okay. You know, she has to take what she's given, or she's uh, she's out. And she would have starved in Germany in the 19th century. Uh, no doubt about that at all. So when we're in the orphan phase, we conform. Many, many people in this world conform. 
Some of them conform to things that we may not like, but they will conform, and at the very best level, a conforming orphan is going to be a pillar of society, is going to do everything that you should do. Uh, these are wonderful, wonderful people. Don't get me wrong. And some people are just conforming because they're too frightened to be who they really are, and that's different. So there are two versions of the orphan. That's the second stage, the orphan. Now, what happens for the orphan is that at a certain point, he or she becomes um, discontented with her lot. I'll use the word herb here because we're talking about Cinderella. And that's exactly what happens to Cinderella. You know, she wants to go to the ball. And her mother says, oh, well, you have to pick all these peas and lentils out of the ashes. So she gets the birds to come and help her. Wonderful that, you know, nature, even nature comes to help her. And she brings them back and the stepmother says, well, no, you can't come. Here's twice as many peas and lentils to pick out of the ashes. And she calls on the birds again and they, they help her and she does it. And then she goes to the stepmother again and says, I have to go to the ball. I want to go to the ball. And the stepmother says, well, you don't have anything to wear. You can't come. Now, if she'd been just an orphan, a conventional kid, terrified to step out, step out of line, she'd have said, oh, okay then. And she'd have stayed home. Instead of which, she knows she has to get to this ball. And so she goes to her mother's grave and she calls on that connection. She knows she is worthy. She knows she's been loved. She goes to the grave and there she finds the first of the three dresses that are going to send her to the ball. At that point, she's not an orphan anymore. She's a pilgrim. She's leaving home like the pilgrims did during the times of the Crusades and after. She's leaving home because she knows there's a truth she has to find. Ah, and that's what pilgrims did when they went to the Holy Land. They would walk usually, they wouldn't ride, and they would contemplate who they were, what they wanted, and what their destiny might be. And they would go to Jerusalem and pray, and then walk all the way back, which is just astonishing to me. And pilgrims are still doing, doing the same thing today. I mean, the Camino uh, 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 is walked every year by more and more people, um, and they go to Santa Maria di Compostela, and uh, many of them say this is a profound spiritual experience, and I can well believe it. So Cinderella has become, has been an, an innocent, has been an orphan in an, a, an adoption that hasn't worked, and then she's become this pilgrim, and she goes to the ball. Now, if she were just looking to get the get out of the house and marry somebody fast, which happens, mm -hmm. of course, to young people, she would look at the prince that first night and when he's obviously keen on her and he, he well, first day, actually, it's not a night, um, and he, she would make sure she didn't stir from his side until he'd proposed. That would be the sensible thing to do. But instead mm -hmm. of that, she runs away. She runs away, notice, when it's getting dark, because in the Grimm Brothers version, it's not a ball at night, it's a ball during the day. So just when she would have, as it were, the advantage of night and the moon and the stars and romance, she says, eh, I've got to think about this. 
and she runs home. And she does it three times. So there's that mystical number three that we often come yeah. across in the stories. And what that tells us is that she's a pilgrim, but she's not about to settle on the first person who proposes to her to to get married. No, she she's a pilgrim, but she's saying, okay, is is this is this person for me? And because she runs away, that gives him the opportunity to run after her. So she moves towards him, and then she, he moves towards her. And the third day, of course, um, he 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 thinks, well, you know, what can we do here? And he spreads pitch or, or um, bird lime, but basically something sticky on the stairs, and that's when she loses her, her shoe, um, which causes him to leave home to find her. Now, that's interesting to me because he's been a prince, he's been an orphan, he's been a, an innocent, and then he, in planning his own marriage, he realizes that he is adopted by his family, but then he has to leave home physically, symbolically, as a pilgrim to look for his bride. And he looks quite hard. He tries pretty hard. Um, uh-huh. you know, the first uh, time she disappears, she, she disappears actually up a tree. And uh, he doesn't hesitate. He says, let's chop down this tree. And he gets a man to chop down the tree. <laughs> uh, and by that time, of course, she's climbed down the other side and hidden. The second night, she runs away and she hides. Or the second evening, just as night is falling, she runs away and hides in a dove cot. Doves. Doves, the symbol of love and peace. Creatures that um, are often linked to the idea of romance because they do mate for life. Um, uh, and she runs into a dovecot, and he says, well, you know, she's in here somewhere. Break the door down. <laughs> so he's not, he's not, as in the Disney version, some sort of dreamy fellow who goes, oh, she's run away. You know, he's, he's very active. Yeah. He knows what he wants. This is the pilgrim mentality, the third stage, where you know you want something and you're going to pursue it, and maybe you'll have to break a few rules and bend a few people's uh, expectations and, and put their noses out of joint, but you're going to do it. And the third day, of course, he puts the pitch on the stairs. You know, he's thinking at this point. He's saying, okay, I can't, I can't chase her down and smash more doors. I'll see if I can trap her. And he nearly succeeds. Then he has to live what he knows to be his truth. And from that point, he stops being a pilgrim because he's found what he wants. He just hasn't got hold of it yet. At that point, he enters the fourth stage, which is, uh, I think, uh, I've called it this because I didn't know what else to call it, but this is the warrior-lover stage. This is the person who will fight for what he loves. And he does. He knows he's got to fight for what he wants, which is Cinderella. And so he goes around the houses in the neighborhood, and he keeps insisting. He says, I, she's here somewhere. She's here somewhere. 
which is very odd behavior for a prince. You could imagine his his father saying, you know, you're being silly, lad. You know, let's find you a nice girl and no more of this going around houses, banging on doors. But he, no, he's determined to do this. And he does. Now, unfortunately, he has a few things to learn because a warrior lover can commit themselves to a line of inquiry sometimes without really thinking it through. And in his case, he makes this rash proclamation, which is, you know, whoever's, uh, whoever's foot goes into this shoe is the woman I will marry, which, because he's a prince, he has to stand by that. So the first sister, and it's interesting to me that the sisters in this story are not ugly sisters. That's, that's Disney for you. The sisters uh-huh. in this story are beautiful, we're told. They are beautiful, but they had uh, black hearts. Wow, there's a phrase for you. So they look Mm. beautiful, but they have black hearts, ugly hearts. So the prince um, goes to to find Cinderella, and uh, the first sister is presented to him, and uh, the stepmother says, you know, your foot is never going to get into that slipper. You know, chop off your toes with this knife. I mean, oh. that's cosmetic surgery, right, yeah. <laughs> of, a, of a terrifying sort. And she does, and her foot goes into the slipper, and the, the prince is caught. Oh, you know, oh, I've promised I'd marry whoever. Oh, no, her foot is in the slipper. Oh, no, he's not stupid. He must look uh-huh. at this woman and say, this isn't the same one I danced with three nights, three days in a row, you know. <laughs> But he's got to hold on to his word. He's got to hold on to his word. And in the 19th century, people would have known that instinctively. They wouldn't have needed someone like me to come and chat about it. So he takes her off, and uh, then it's the birds again, isn't it? It's the doves that come and uh, uh, awaken his, uh, uh, his senses to the fact that she is shedding blood from where her toes have been cut off. And so he takes, her, takes this first sister back and says, nope, isn't her. <laughs> I mean, that, a lesser person would have said, oh, well, I've been duped. Oh, well, I better just deal with it. But no, he goes back, says, not her. Who else have you got in this house? He knows Cinderella's in that house somewhere. And uh, the second sister is presented to him, and she cuts off, with the same sharp knife that the stepmother gives her, cuts off parts of her heel. I mean, <sighs> she won't have to walk anywhere when she's queen. <laughs> uh, and once again, the prince says, "Oh no, you know, she has foot fits in the slipper. You know, I'm I'm caught with my 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 own words." Puts her on his horse, rides off. The doves alert him to the fact that uh, this is this is not the the woman that he's looking for he takes her back again and says ah uh-uh. ah i mean really uh, this is socially extremely embarrassing <laughs> uh, yeah uh, and he he then says there's got to be someone else in this house come on is there anyone else in this house uh, and that's when the father says well there's just the kitchen drudge that my wife left to me but you know that can't be her so they drag Cinderella out, and she's covered in ashes. She's dirty. 
if she's been in the, living in the kitchen doing the cooking, she's probably you know, greasy as well. And he presents the slipper, her foot goes into it. And this is where the Grimm brothers are so, so clever, because at that moment, he declares, this is the true bride. Bam. He hasn't said that before. He knows. He knows. That's the warrior lover knowing, this is what I'm doing. This is right. Here I am. And this is the way we are when we choose a career, when we choose a significant other, a life partner, when we make a decision, this is who I am, and I don't care what anybody says. Can you imagine? He's going to take this scruffy little girl, because that's what she must look like, back to his palace. Do you, can you imagine what his father would say? Yeah. <laughs> his father would say, not her. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's determined to. He's absolutely determined to. And so he takes her off to the palace, and um, they are to be, well, they are married, and that's when they transition to the next phase, the fifth phase, which I call the king and queen. And that is when we find in ourselves the executive strength that used to be symbolized by a king who would, after all, have to make laws and even have criminals executed, and also the merciful, gentle, nurturing side that is symbolized by the queen. Now, we have to do this for ourselves. Each of us has to learn how to be tough and tender at the same time and to manage those two attributes within us. If you just have someone who's tough in life, that's not a very pleasant person to be around. If you just have someone who is tender in life, what winds up happening is that person becomes a doormat and everyone takes them for granted. We have to be tough and tender. We have to be within ourselves the king and queen, in this case the prince and princess, because he hasn't yet taken the throne. And that's what happens when they marry. This whole business of happily ever after and they married and walked in has to be seen symbolically as the uniting of two aspects of the self that need to be in balance. Any parent will tell you that. Any parent knows that there is a time when you have to cuddle and, 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 and uh, um, be, be silly and soft with the child uh, and, be, and be indulgent. And any parent knows that if you just do that, you'll get a very, very unpleasant teenager. <laughs> you, need to be, you need to know when to be stern and say no, and you need to know when to be loving and indulgent, as, for instance, today, um, my, uh, my grandkids, uh, one of my grandkids is, um, is, has a little, well, she's got some sort of bad cold. So today, we're cosseting her. But we're not going to do that every day, <laughs> because if we did, we would spoil her rotten, and that would, that would come back to haunt us. Now, yes, so far we've had, sorry? Sorry, I agreed with you. Oh, good. Yes, I've seen that way too often. So we've had five stages so far. The innocent, the orphan, the pilgrim, the seeker after truth, the warrior lover, the one who will fight for what he or she believes in, fight peacefully but 
definitely fight. And now we have the king and queen, the monarch pair. And these are developmental stages that each of us can achieve as we go through life. The last stage is uh, probably the most important and the most difficult to define. And that's what I call the magician. And you think to yourself, well, I don't remember a magician in the story of Cinderella. Well, no. But the thing that happens is Cinderella goes off to the church to be married, and um, she has one of her sisters, beautiful, dark-hearted sisters, on one side, and the, uh, the other sister on the other side, because they're hoping that they'll catch the eye of some wealthy, wealthy citizen and get themselves married. But while they're going to church, the doves, remember the doves? The doves yeah. come down and peck out the eye, just one eye, the outside eye, as it were, of each of the sisters. So the one that's on the left loses her left eye. Uh, and when they come back from the church, the doves arrive and peck out the other eye. And you think, what on earth is that about? Well, it's a symbolic representation of what tends to happen when you are living your best life in tune with yourself and fully actualized. And that is, you don't have to make everything happen. Things happen for you, almost as if they're magical. And that's what the magician is. The magician is not a a person who does a conjuring act, pulling rabbits out of hats, that's, that's, that's an illusionist, you know. A magician is someone who, just because he or she is whoever he or she is, that person can change the energy of a situation. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? You know, I've seen people who will walk into a room full of, full of folk who are uh, at, at odds with each other, and they will just be able to diffuse the situation just by walking in and being themselves. And you think, how did that happen? And then you realize, oh, so-and-so walked in. And and I'm sure you've observed that, yes? Oh, sure. Um, Yeah. We we can think of... you know the uh, the my favorite comparison is uh, the team coach the team coach doesn't play in the game doesn't go on the field and play the game whatever the game is the team coach says you know i think you should try doing this and i think you should try and if a coach is any good the energy doesn't come from him or her but it comes from the team they all work together and discover they can do more as a team than they ever thought they could do individually. Uh, I've seen that with teachers, actually really gifted teachers. They walk into a room and they change the energy and suddenly a bunch of people who are sitting there with their feet up on desks, you know, uh, not interested in what's happening, suddenly they go, oh, this is pretty cool stuff. I want to know more. What happened? Mm -hmm. That person worked some magic that didn't involve browbeating the students or the people or whoever. It depended upon bringing the energy to a different level. So that's the sixth stage, which we're all capable of being part of. Cinderella doesn't have to punish her sisters, who really did some ugly stuff to her. She lets nature punish her sisters. And nature 
karma really does. I mean, they tried to to convince the prince that he was seeing what he wasn't seeing, and so they lose their eyesight. I mean, as a symbol, it couldn't get more powerful than that. So no. that's a very long answer. <laughs> well, you know, but I that's... think what, what, what I found fascinating was, now the Grimm brothers put these stories together. Yes. They, they, were, they were commissioned, actually, I believe, to, to collect the folklore of the mm-hmm. German um, stories yeah. and, and pull mm-hmm. them all together. And mm-hmm. I was trying to apply your, mm-hmm. your six stages to the Grimm brothers because yeah. I know that they uh-huh. were two of eight children, so it was a big family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know. I know that they went through um, losing everything a number of times. So that definitely yeah. was orphan. You know, every yes, they were born, so that was innocent. And then they had the orphan thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as pilgrims, it would seem to me that that you know, the, in collecting these stories, I'm just wondering, yes. were yes. they just collecting stories, or were they? going more deeply into what is this teaching people and, and uh, you know, we will take this story because it is teaching, it, it is a parable, it is teaching a wisdom of some sort. Um, mm, mm, mm. Yes. And, and I know, uh, mm-hmm. so, so, so I know they, they got to the pilgrim stage where they were traveling around and gathering stuff and putting it together. Yes. Um, yes. I think the the... You know, we're talking the 1800s here, and yes, if you take are. a look at pictures of the Grimm brothers, they are grim. They don't really look <laughs> very. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, you look at them and you shiver and you think, I wouldn't want my child listening to a tale this person told me. <laughs> um, and and yet, they were a little bit of a prude because the one place mm-hmm. that that I found that they did alter a story a little bit, was in Rapunzel. Do you, do you know where that yeah. was? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, yeah, please, please carry on. Yeah. Okay, I, maybe I hope I have the, right, the same one you do, um, where in the, in the story that they got, um, Rapunzel asked the witch why her clothes were getting so tight around the tummy, and yes. that was because yeah. that's where she knew that that the prince had been there and they had been um, mm-hmm. together. <laughs> They'd <laughs> had sex, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 they did take that part out of the story, which which I thought mm. was so cute. I mean, but mm. you know, I I I obviously didn't know these men personally, but mm. I'm not that old. But um, <laughs> it, it, it it just it. I I could trace them to the pilgrim stage, but I couldn't go any further. Yeah. I mean, do you know more about ah, their lives that you could take it further? Well, yes, I, I think you're absolutely right. They traveled around collecting these tales. But in fact, they did a little bit more than that because they made absolutely sure to get the very best folk tale tellers they could. And we even have the names of some of them. Um, carefully recorded so they weren't just traveling around collecting tales but they were using very specific skills to to um, authenticate these tales i mean the ones from from for instance from dorothea weimann 
um, uh, fascinating because she, Dorothea, uh, insisted that she would change not a word of her tales mm -hmm. that she told. And if she made a mistake, she would pause and she would go back to make sure they were always exactly the same. Now, I'm telling you that detail because what was apparent was that these were very ancient teaching tales, and the Grimm brothers knew this, and they knew, just like Dorothea insisted on her version of these, these tales, they knew that they would have a strong fight to make sure these tales were not turned into, well, Disneyfied, as we might say, entertainment, yeah. because that had already happened. You know, many of the tales were being um, messed with uh, in France and in Italy, and they were being presented in in extraordinary forms that completely um, uh, distorted what was going on. So, for instance, if we're going back to Cinderella, that whole business of the fairy godmother, that doesn't mm -hmm. occur in the Grimm Brothers version. And the fairy godmother is a beloved invention, but it means that it turns Cinderella into somebody who is passive. She's absolutely passive. Instead of which she is defiant, she goes to her mother's grave, she prays, and that's when she gets the dress. You know, it's her mm -hmm. actions that make her get these dresses. So I, I'm going into such detail because I believe that when they realized what they had to do, they became warrior lover level researchers they were going for the very highest standards they could manage they would they spent years comparing these tales making sure they got what they felt was the most authentic one the most authentic version and they must have internally known oh yes this has rich symbolism to it now not all the tales do by the way some of them are, uh -huh. are fairly shabby tales but the ones that uh, jump off the page at us have some powerful life lessons, some powerful spiritual oh, yeah. lessons. I mean, Cinderella, you know, it doesn't matter. So the spiritual um, uh, value there is it doesn't matter if you feel that you've been despised and downtrodden and mistreated. You can still make your way to where you need to be. Wow. Talk about empowerment. This is a this is a this is not what you would expect for young women in the 19th century who many of them were anything but empowered and yet within the peasant culture peasant culture said you know women can be just as empowered as anybody because they are valuable members of the community so even by suggesting that women should not be sitting at home uh, knitting and uh, raising babies, even by suggesting that there were tales here that were saying something different, giving us an active Cinderella, giving us actually a very active and powerful Snow White when we come to that stage, to that tale. Uh -huh. What the, the Grimm brothers were doing was they were asserting themselves as people who loved what they did and were prepared to fight for it. Now, other people, as I said, were making a fortune turning these stories into into stage plays, uh, Mother Goose rhyme type, uh, easy reading stories. They refused to do that. They mm. had no uh, assured future. Eventually, of course, they did become um, very prestigious professors. 
And in that uh, in that role, they insisted on having the tales in the form that they needed to be, because they thought it was the, their book, or that the tales were a repository of real spiritual and huh, social instruction that everybody oh, needed yeah. to read. And at that point, I think they became a monarch pair, acting as, as kings. Uh-huh. Having produced the tales, they, they had the wisdom not to, uh, not to write lengthy commentaries on the tales, but let them, the tales, work their magic. And they did. You know, 1812 oh, yeah. was the first edition of the tales. Uh, there were subsequent editions, but there were basically sub- subsequent editions every year for the next 50 years. People oh, said, wow. wow, these are amazing tales. What are we going to do about Whoa! <laughs> and they might not have understood them in an analytic sense. They might not have used words like, oh, this is about young women being empowered. But they said, there's something happening here that is really strong and powerful, and these are too good to throw away. Oh, yeah. Well, and yeah, that, the man who... that's the magic. Hmm? Oh, geez. Yeah, the, the man who um, did the intro for the show... Um, mm, is a Native yes. American storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it, it it didn't click in to me until I was listening to him speak, and I thought, holy mackerel, that's what he's doing. He is providing, you know, preserving these ancient stories and telling them mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again to the Native American children yes. and adults. It's cool yes, stuff. and it's I mean, part it, of their culture. Yeah. It it is it is. You know, I think we're in a time here, and and then of course you have the parables in the Bible. So yes. you know the 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 practice of weaving wisdom into a story is certainly ancient for sure. Very, and, very ancient. And you, you do remember the story, and and probably repeat it, and and hopefully in in the listening to it and repeating it. The, the subtleties of it do sink in, even even if it's not with a cognizant recognition of it in mm. your consciousness, but but yes. that there is that that pattern that you have imprinted yourself with, so that mm-hmm. you know every girl wants to be a princess, and every well, I don't <laughs> think boys care about being a prince, but every girl <laughs> wants to be a princess, um, cool. and you know. They think of their wedding as being a princess, and then you know mm-hmm. everybody is at least once, twice, mm-hmm. or maybe even three times. Who knows? But, <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> but but yeah. you know, it just to me it it seemed that that the the information that you have gotten out of all of these stories and put them in form and and identified the different archetypes as they as they um, evolved. Um, Probably, you know, to some degree, the Grimm brothers knew what they were doing, and to other degrees, probably yes. not. But, but yeah. it it just, you know, when you the Grimm brothers didn't write any of these stories; they just collected them. Mm-hmm. And I think so many, mm-hmm. so many people think that the Grimm brothers actually wrote the stories. Yeah, um, so, <laughs> it's true. It's true. It, people think that they wrote them. Yeah, but they didn't. Yes. Take, take a look at them. Yeah. They were not capable of doing that for sure. Um, oh, these, I just, yeah. I mean, yeah. 
they were a dour-looking couple of guys. Oh but, yeah, um, yeah. They were scholars, you know. They were they were at home with with lots of writing and books, but they weren't creative in the way that you'd have to be to create some of these stories. And 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 yet today, mm. you still see you still see the progression through these archetypes in in a yeah. lot of the. Um, a lot of the things that are out there today, not not all of them, mm-hmm. but I mean, no. soap operas take forever to have that happen. But yes. but there are. <laughs> but but in 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 a good novel, you can you can see it. But I think the most important yes. thing is for somebody to to sit back and try to identify the different stages within their own life. Yes. You know, we yes. we all you know we don't live in fairy tales, but but we do have those those moments and is it is it a steady progression or do you do you sometimes kind of regress and then go forward again oh if only it were a steady progression uh because no we can always regress and actually uh-huh. it's very easy to regress um if you think about what happens to people when they're in a job they don't like um if they're in a job they don't like or if they're, they're burning out or maybe reaching midlife or something of that sort, what tends to happen is that as we, as we face this, this terrifying change, because it is rather terrifying, we feel that we don't have very many skills. We feel that, oh, you know, I'm no good at this, I'm burned out, I need a different job, I hate my colleagues or whatever. This is, this is what people report to me in my counseling business. Um, and at that point, they stop being whatever level they were at of competence and they regress to being orphans. The orphan mm-hmm. says, well, I'll just sit down, shut up, try and fit in, look for another job. Yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll do what I can. Um, I've done quite a lot of uh, observing of teachers in the Boston area because that's my home area. And uh, the average teacher in the Boston public school system, the average, uh, I'm reliably informed, lasts five years. Now think of that. You've gone to a four-year college. You've taken your degree. You're a young bright teacher, you go to an inner city school, you're determined to to be a crusading warrior lover you know, for what you, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they discover oh gosh, this is just too hard we're underfunded, we have kids from from difficult circumstances uh, you know, one young woman was telling me that you know, she had several really bright kids, and uh, they didn't seem to be able to concentrate. And she said, well, what, what's, what's wrong? And one said, well, my brother was shot yesterday. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. And the other said, yeah, well, you know, my cousin was shot and killed last week. So, and they're coming, they're still coming to school. So anyway, uh, teachers in our day and age, I think, are under-supported, and they burn out, and they have a tendency to say, that's it, I'm giving up teaching, I think I'll do something completely different, I'll, I'll work at Starbucks. Uh-huh. Because they're so depressed, they're so sad, they're so de-skilled de- and disempowered, 
that any old job looks as though it'll do for now. That's when they go back to orphan. I'll just be in some job where people will tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. When I try to guide people through this stage, I say, that's reasonable, but actually what's happening is you're being asked, what can you do with what you've learned at a higher level? Can you take your knowledge of education and the way the system doesn't seem to be working for you, and can you do something to change how that works? And what I discover is that the teachers who have burned out have gone on to do all sorts of other things within education. Sometimes they open their own tutoring companies. Sometimes they do outreach for various programs uh, to um, impoverished neighborhoods and underprivileged neighborhoods. Sometimes they find themselves moved to actually go to foreign countries and try to work there as well in ways where they have more freedom and uh, okay. can use more, should we say, creativity. And yes, well, this yeah, is I'm, where you... I'm one of those. I, I got ah. to work 25 years. Mm-hmm. And after 25 years, I had a car accident, so I had to mm-hmm. um, retire and so I just took my teaching and put it into spirituality. Ah, so that, beautiful. You know, so that now I, you know, interview authors and I do all sorts of creative mm. stuff. But, but, yeah. but, yeah, I can absolutely see how how burnout can, you know, really get you to a point where you need to find another crusade to go on. Yes, yes, and you need not to every, be not, able. It, it, it's not everybody knows where to look for that crusade. Yes. Well, this is why I became so uh, infused by the archetypes, because it seemed to me that if people didn't know there was a next step, then they mm-hmm. would just fall back into what is familiar. So if people didn't know that when they burned out that this was actually a growth point, that was asking them to take their skills in a different direction, then most of them would tend to fall back into some type of work that was easy and unsatisfying and uh, and probably far less than they were fully capable of doing. And so, I wonder, I wonder if you took those people who were, quote-unquote, burnt out, instead of saying mm-hmm. they were burnt out, say tell them that they're not really burnt out, they're a phoenix, and in order to Uh, fly again, they have to burn themselves down and make themselves out of the ashes. That's that's a beautiful way to describe it, yes. Yes, I I shall use that next time I'm talking to one of my (laughs) burned-out people. Uh, But yes, (laughs) thank you. But that's exactly it. I mean, sometimes we have to burn out one path so that something new can begin like a forest fire you know burns out an area but then new growth will happen if it's allowed to uh, but yeah the phoenix is a much more powerful symbol uh, that's good and well that, i mean to be burned uh, out means means you know that's the end but with the phoenix burning yeah. out is only the beginning and the birth it's the beginning yes that's right that's exactly it yes so that was, uh, for me, the archetypes 
resonated with so much of what I saw in my counseling business. Um, and, uh, you know, I've tested out these archetypes. People use them in in commercial uh, scenarios, in industry, in advising to uh, to large companies. Uh, and I'm thrilled. They, they seem to work. You know, they seem to be articulating something <laughs> that is inside us. Now, they're not my archetypes. They're just, you know, things that I stumbled across. And they're there over well, and over again. Well, you put labels on them, and that, that helps. Mm. And and I think when, when um, now, now your, your Princess Frogs and Ugly Sisters book, I just loved mm. the title. There was no way I was <laughs> not going to read that book. Um, but... It, it it was you know it it didn't matter what was inside it was the title that got me and then, and then when I read it it was like oh my gosh and and I think it's it's important you know everybody has has listened to these fairy tales but not mm. not as as most most people have listened to the Disney version I was very lucky mm. I got one of the Grimm brothers books and read through it. Um, mm. And I think by the time I was done with it, it was well. I'll never read this to a child, um, <laughs> because <laughs> you know Walt Disney had a much better version of it. But now that I understand, I I did mm. not understand that that there were there was a message that was in it. It 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 wasn't yeah. really meant for children as much as it was meant. No to to um in embed in, in the consciousness um mm-hmm. the 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 journey that the person yeah. this princess the prince or whoever was going mm-hmm. through and and um you know some of the symbology like the dark woods and going down mm-hmm. wells and everything yeah. where where you are going into your own consciousness and you are going into you know the core of your being and and drawing yes. wisdom from from that I mean, yes. all of those symbolic things that are in in these stories, not the Disney, mm-hmm. Disney version. So I, I actually encourage everybody to go out and get one of the, uh, the Grimm Brothers books. I'm sure they won't get, you know, a royalty from it. But um, <laughs> yeah. But re- yeah. read these stories in their rawness and see, mm. um, you know, what's happening here because – it, it really is an evolution of awareness that, that's there. Once you understand, you know, the, the archetypes, the journey, the, 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 the story is woven around to make you understand mm. the process that you're going through in life as well so that it's not, yes. it's not pure entertainment. It's, it's a life mm. journey. And, and if you can understand it, you can recognize periods of time um, in your life where you have been the orphan and the pilgrim and the warrior lover and the monarch and, and the magician. I mean, there are those times when all of those different qualities come out of us, and if we can identify yes. them, it, it makes life, um, it, it, it actually makes life more fun. Um, it does, yes. It, it, and, you know, you can look at your friends who are going through difficulties and say, uh-uh-uh-uh, I know where they are. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, but, you know, you kind of, you know, if if you understand the different archetypes and, and you have friends who understand them, you know, you can say, well, I'm the pilgrim today. 
but but I'm yeah. going to be the warrior lover tomorrow. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um, yes. <laughs> if, if you understand the titles, you can you can see your own behavior in each of them, which is really um, phenomenal. Um, I want to go yes. into some of these stories because I think yeah, I think that the, I, I know my audience is curious about a lot of them, mm-hmm. um, and there are some that that the audience probably hasn't hasn't heard so let's yeah. look at faithful john which i thought was yeah. was, a, was a great story yes yes well faithful john uh doesn't usually get uh get talked about I'm, I'm not quite sure why because it's such a rich story but faithful john or faithful johannes is uh is a story about a young a young king who inherits the the kingdom and um the first thing that he does is he wants to look around his uh, his his palace and uh, faithful john has been told not to let him into one room <laughs> uh but of course being a young and arrogant young man he uh, demands to go and look into this room and Faithful John says, well, you're the king. Even though your father said, I mustn't let you in there, I guess I have to. So he opens the door. The young king walks in and sees a picture, a portrait of uh, the princess of the golden roof. Um, she's, that's the title that is in most versions. And he immediately falls in love with this this vision and falls down and faints and says, that's her, I must have her or I'll die. Um, so this is this is uh, quite a strong statement from a king. You know, I must must marry this woman or I'll die. And faithful Johannes says, "Well, um, yeah, I'll, I'm your servant. I'll help you mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because I'm your servant and I have to do what the king says." And so they get they take all of the gold in the kingdom and uh, load it on board. Uh, a ship because they know that the princess of the golden roof loves gold objects uh, but before they they leave and think of this as a symbol you know here is this young king he's going to give everything he can for the the woman he loves and they turn this gold into beautiful objects because she's not interested in gold for its value, she's interested in its beauty. And I think anyone who's who's paying attention to these stories, because they would have been repeated night after night when the, when the storyteller was there, has to say, well, what's the symbolism of gold? What is, what is, what, what's gold about? And I think it's, that's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, especially in the 19th century, gold is valuable not because it's it's scarce or whatever, but because it does not rust, it does not corrode. It's one of the only things that is more or less permanent. Silver will decay, uh, iron will will rust very fast, clothing will rot. Everything that you could see around you in the 19th century was in the process of decaying pretty fast but Mm -hmm. not gold so by taking the the kingdom's worth of gold it's as though this young man is saying 
I know how to love and how to venture everything for the person I love. He goes on a pilgrimage. He gets on a boat. He sails to see her. And when he gets there, he sends his uh, faithful Johannes to uh, to address the uh, the princess. And the first thing that faithful Johannes sees is a maid carrying water in golden buckets. And so you, you're reassured, oh, gold is not valuable because it's money. Gold is something that one uses even to transport water because... Well, it's not a rusty old bucket. It's not a wooden bucket. It's it's a it's something pure, and you want your water to be pure. So faithful Johannes goes to the princess and manages to, manages to talk her into going on board the boat. When the boat is uh, when she's on the boat, um, they surreptitiously cast off from the the uh, dock. And before she knows it, they're sailing back to his country. And we have a very strange thing that happens then, where the princess says, Oh no, oh no, I'm being abducted, I'm being abducted. And the young king says, But I'm a king. And she says, Oh, well, that's all right then. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, <laughs> you think, well, this is not realism. Uh, unless you say, Oh, right, he's not a merchant. So he doesn't value gold just because it's money. He is speaking the language of the heart. He's saying, here, is, I'm offering you everything I am. And she goes, oh, right, that's a, that's a pretty good offer. When somebody <laughs> says, you know, this is my heart, my soul, my being, will you have me? It's fairly persuasive. <laughs> I so say. I would say that was pretty persuasive. Um, so they sail back to the, uh, the, the the home country of the king, the young king. And faithful Johannes is up on deck in the way that people were in those days. And uh, these three ravens perch up on top of the, the rigging. And faithful Johannes, of course, can, uh, can understand raven, as I'm sure many of us can. Uh, uh, and uh, the, the first raven says... Uh, well, when the young king comes to the, to his new kingdom, he will be offered a beautiful horse. He says, but if he gets on it, he will die. There's no way forward except if he shoots the horse. Mm. Okay. And the second raven says, well, you know, when he comes to his palace, he'll be given his wedding garments and he'll want to put them on. Uh, but, you know, if he does... He'll be burned because they're covered in, in pitch and, uh, and saltpeter. He'll be burned to death. There's only one way to save him, and that is that is if he takes the clothes and throws them on the fire. And the third one says, well, even if he survives all that, when he's dancing with his new bride, she's going to fall down in a swoon, and she will die, unless somebody rips open her dress bites her breast, yeah, interesting, isn't it, and draws mm. blood, which he then spits out on the floor. That's the only way he can. this can end happily. Well, faithful Johannes um, <laughs> thinks, whoa, this is amazing. And then the, the ravens say, yes, but if anybody says anything about this, he will be turned into stone. So faithful Johannes 
knows something that he cannot talk about without being turned into stone. Turning into stone. Yes. So, uh, so anyway, it, it all unfolds. Um, the the young king comes ashore, and this beautiful horse is presented to him, and he's just about to get on it when Faithful Johannes jumps up, draws a pistol from the saddle's holster, and shoots the horse dead. And the young king says, well, uh, I don't like that, but this is Faithful Johannes, and he's always had my best interest at heart, so that's okay. And they go up to the castle, and the wedding clothes are offered on a golden dish, and the young king is just about to put them on when Faithful Johannes grabs the dish, throws the lot on the fire, and they're immediately burned up. And the young king says, well, um, I've always trusted Faithful Johannes, and okay, fair enough. So the wedding is, is uh, celebrated, and they are, the bride and groom are dancing, and the bride falls down in a swoon. Faithful Johannes knows what he has to do. He rushes over to her, rips open the front of her dress. Think of that. Bites wow. her breast, sucks some blood, and spits it out on the floor. And this is too much for the young, young king. He says, that's it. You know, this, you've gone too far. He condemns Johannes, Johannes to death. And Johannes is about to be burned uh, at the stake when he says, this is why I did what I did. Uh, I killed the horse uh, because you would have disappeared and never been seen again. And as he says that, he, he's turned into stone from his feet to his knees. And he says, and I threw the wedding clothes on the fire because you would have got into them and you've been burned to death. And as he says that, the curse comes true again. And from his knees to his chest, he is, he's turned to stone. And then he says, uh, and I saved the, princes, the princess's life because I knew this was the only way to do it. And I knew that I would be turned to stone if I said anything about it. And then he's completely turned to stone. Oh. And the young king begins to connect the dots. Because if we think of a horse, the first thing that he has to have taken away from him, that's the pride of the same sort of pride we would get from a fast sports car. And he has to learn, if he's going to be married and a responsible husband and king, he has to learn to get rid of personal pride, vanity. And that includes his clothing, the wedding clothes. Oh, he'll look so great in those, but no. It's not about him and his clothes or him and how fast he can gallop. That has to be taken away from him. And when it comes to the princess, he has to learn that although he loves her dearly and has ventured everything he has for her, she is, after all, a physical human being who has blood, and it's just ordinary blood. It's not being preserved. It's being spat out. He has to okay. learn, as it were, that he is... He's in love not with a goddess, but with a real person. So the young king begins to put this together, and he's deeply sorrowful. And he takes the, the stone effigy of faithful Johannes, and he puts it in his bedroom. Now, <laughs> we know what young people get up to in the bedroom. I'm not sure that it's 
usual to have the stone version of your faithful father figure, because that's what Johannes is, a father figure who isn't a father, acting as uh, a father figure. But the young king says he wants it in his bedroom. Uh And every night he sorrows. He says, I wish Johannes were alive. And then one day the stone effigy says, you want to bring me back to life? And the young prince says, yes. And the effigy says, you've got twin boys. He says, yes. He says, what I want you to do is cut their heads off, and then I'll come back to life. And the king doesn't hesitate. He says, right, whatever you advise, for whatever reason you advise it, I will do, because you have never, ever let me down. So he cuts off the heads of his young sons. I mean, wow, this is um, this yes. is not lightweight stuff. No. Faithful Johannes comes back to life and says, thank you, thank you for your trust. Little bits there of Abraham and Isaac from the Bible where Abraham sacrifices Isaac, or almost sacrifices Isaac. Yeah. And then faithful Johannes says, uh, now, all you have to do is put their heads back on, smear a little blood around where the cut marks are, and they'll be fine. And he does that, and they are. They're absolutely fine. They're jumping around and having fun. And so the young king says, well, hold on a second. And he puts them in a cupboard, actually, or another room, and uh, asks faithful Johannes to stand to one side. And his wife comes in, and he says, my dear, we can bring faithful Johannes back to life. And she says, oh, that would be great. That would be wonderful. What must we do? He says, well, we must cut off the heads of our two boys. And she doesn't hesitate. She says, then that's what we must do. If if the statue has said that's what we must, that's what we must do. And that's the moment, of course, when he opens the door and says, well, guess what? I already did it. Surprise. <laughs> and, uh, surprise. And the queen is happy and the young king is happy and faithful Johannes is right there, right there, to advise the young king again, trusted as never before. And this whole story, this great long story that people tend to skip over because it is rather difficult, is surely all about the whole business of how do you bring up a young man into his own sense of power so that he's not arrogant So he's not all about the horse, the clothing, and how beautiful his wife is. How do you bring up a young man so that he can take advice from his elders? Because, as as we all know, at a certain point in our lives, we tend to think our parents and our elders are wrong about everything. (laughs) Until a little later (laughs) we go, oh, maybe they weren't wrong about that. (laughs) That's happened to me, you know, as as Mark Twain put it when I was 14. Yeah. Yeah, I, I exactly. I'm right with you on that one. At, at some point, my mother knew nothing, and and a couple of years mm-hmm. later, I was surprised at how much she had learned in those few years. How you much know, she'd was, learned. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. me, me too. You know, my father's been dead for a while, but every so often I say, "Oh, I could really use his insights." Ah, what would oh. he have done? Oh, I wish I'd listened more when he was around. <laughs> Why is and that? So the, you know, it's, why is that? You know, yeah, we just we just don't always listen as well as we could. 
So this whole strange story is all about how a young man gets to grow up and really gets to be humbled, I think. It's, not, it's less about how young women grow up. Now, we've had Cinderella, which is about how a young woman grows up. This is a story about how a young man grows up. And sometimes you'll get a, a story which has both man and woman growing up together. But this is a story that is focused on on the young, arrogant, uh, as we all are when we're young, when this young man has to take charge of his life. It's a symbolic representation. It would have been told, if you can imagine it, in some cottage with all the family, young and old, gathered round, maybe the neighbors as well, definitely the neighbors. They would have sat round with a flickering firelight and they'd have heard the story. And it would have been, well, magical and spooky. And they're quite likely to have said, wow, that was a great tale. Can you tell it to us again? In the same way that my yeah, grandchildren often say that. And in, the, in, in this story, they all lived happily ever after, hopefully. They all lived um, happily ever after. Yeah, it is. I mean, it... It is not everyone can tell a story, so it's so great that the, the you know that the Grimm Grimm's brothers um, did write them down. And yes, while while Walt Disney does a nice job, he doesn't teach a lesson; he just entertains. No. And and you know, entertainment is lovely, but. But when when there are such deep messages within the stories, and and when you Disneyfy them, you you take all, out all of that. You know, um, you don't see yes. purpose, reason, and growth. All, all you all you That's see right. is a very superficial view of what love is. And you know, to and and I'm not um, in any way soured on love. I I do believe in it, and it's wonderful. Mm. But oh, yes. but but real love does go through testing and growth and pain sometimes yes. to get to yes. a place where where the magic happens. It 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 isn't yes. it, it it isn't you know talking mice and birds and and all mm-hmm. of that other stuff. And and yes. I think that that these stories give you a better taste of in order to come to that kind of love. There is a struggle within yourself to become the person who is worthy of it. Oh, beautifully put, beautifully put. And I, you know, I think this is the real power of the of the the, the non-Disney stories, the Grimm Brothers' real versions. If you think about the 19th century, most of the people in, in Germany would have been semi-literate. And so where did they get their knowledge about how to be? They would get it from two places. They get it from the Bible. Bible's a pretty good book, but it doesn't tell you how to grow up. It doesn't tell you how to deal with a step-parent. It doesn't tell you how to deal with your own pride in such a direct way. The Grimm Brothers' tales, as written down, these were the stories that villagers and townspeople relied on to guide them on how to be human, how to be human. Mm -hmm. And so 
these are not realistic tales. I mean, cutting the heads off your children is not realistic. And yet, <laughs> no. it says, you know, and yet behind that is the sense that um, are you prepared to to be strong and do things that others would consider to be outrageous in pursuit of your own truth, whether you cut their heads off literally or metaphorically by <laughs> telling them, you know, you know, as in we use the phrase today, you bite somebody's head off, you tell them off, you tell them off. Yeah. And a good parent, as we said earlier, a good parent will do that every so often. You say, no, that's not okay. Yeah. Can you do that? Well, or are you going to, you know, indulge them? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that you get people, um, as do I, who um, want a relationship. And mm-hmm. I, can, I can, you know, it's like I've done everything I'm supposed to do, and here I am, and I can't find a, a good relationship. What's wrong mm-hmm. with me? And, you know, all of that. Mm-hmm. And the reality mm-hmm. is, if you look at these different archetypes, you can see in your life where, where you were a lot of them, and then then there's a stumbling block, a place where yeah. perhaps you haven't committed totally to one of these aspects. And, yes. you know, it, it's sort of like you become the person you want to be in your life. And if you can't mm-hmm. get to that place where where you are the warrior lover or you are the monarch or you are the magician, mm-hmm. if you if you mm-hmm. are stuck with with being the orphan or the pilgrim, you're going mm. to attract orphans and pilgrims to you. I'm so, afraid so. I'm afraid so. Yeah, it, we are like magnets. We do we, we do pull people to us who are in the same place. Yeah. So, yes. And that's not a lesson that everybody wants to admit is there. And um, yeah. you know, I can I I know of people who say, well, I'm already the magician. I don't need those other uh. archetypes and. <laughs> <laughs> and that puts you back that puts you back at either orphan or innocent i'm not sure which mm-hmm. but um but it, but it, it you know and and i wouldn't dare to try to tell them that but but mm. the, but the reality is you know we we do have to become the kind of person we want to have in our life and and if you think yeah. you deserve a warrior lover or a monarch or a magician mm-hmm. Then, then it's your duty to become one to attract that person to you, and that's what happens yeah. in all of these stories, which, which is, mm-hmm. you know, again, so great. Um, yeah. Let me see. I, I, we, we got to pull in more stories because, I know mm, people yeah. are out there saying, "What about? What about? How about brother <laughs> and sister?" That's uh, leading yes, directly well, uh, to that. Yeah. Um, or, or should we? Should we go for the very first story in the uh, in the book, which is of course the the Frog King, which I think most oh, people I love already this know. Story. Shall we go stay well, for that? Uh, sure. Well, they sort of yeah. know it. They don't know. <laughs> they sort of know. They yeah, they really ahead. don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, the Frog King. Uh, you know, not the Frog Prince, but the Frog King. There's a big thing right there, especially as Disney has uh, had uh, the princess and the frog and, uh, you know, all this uh. stuff. Well, it's the first story in the in the collection. So they, the Grimm brothers started off with a really powerful one, which is why I wanted to focus on it. If we look at that story, 
Everything happens that we remember from the Disney version, but there is one key element. Well, there are several key elements, but I, I want to focus on a couple of key elements right away. And that is, at the beginning of the story, you have the innocent princess. She's probably about, well, she's, she's a little child. By the end, she's a grown woman. So this is not a realistic time time span. But she is playing by the spring with her golden ball. And you think there's gold again. We talked about gold. This is her little world. and She's playing by herself. She throws it up in the air. She catches it. She is in her own little bubble. She is the innocent, enjoying being the innocent. But then she drops the ball. It goes into the spring. And she, she starts to weep. Um, which is what the innocent does. Um, uh, somebody come come and look after me. And that's mm-hmm. when the frog appears and says, um, what can I do for you? And she says, I've lost my golden ball. Please, 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 please. She doesn't know how to make a promise, so she says, I'll do anything, I'll do anything. And the frog says, okay, I want to sit by your table, uh, eat off your plate, sleep in your bed, um, Is that okay? And she says, yes, 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 yes. So he goes down deep, deep. He's he's a frog. Okay, he knows the depths of of the watery world, the depths of the unconscious. And in the 19th century, everybody knew that a frog started as frog spawn, those little gelatinous mess of, of, of things with a little dark dot in the middle that became tadpoles and then at a certain point became air-breathing frogs. Everybody knew a frog. Oh, frog! Oh, it's a symbol of transformation. Something that grows. And he, the frog, is absolutely familiar with the dark, unconscious world where we lose our innocent playthings. He knows a thing or two. He's not just a frog. He does talk as well, so we know he's not just a frog. Uh, right. So he gets the ball, the, the, the golden ball back, and the little girl grabs it and says, oh, that's wonderful, bye, and runs back <laughs> to the castle. She doesn't know how to keep a promise. She doesn't value anything but her own world. Then there she is. She's sitting at table having dinner and there's this knock 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 at the door and it's the frog and he says well can i come in she slams the door and then her father says who's at the door oh it's just a frog just a frog well what's he doing well he wants to come in all right why does he want to come in well i made a promise and father says you made a promise you must honor your promise and the princess doesn't like this we're told that she's the youngest princess, that she is more beautiful than than the sun, and she's obviously spoiled. Her father says, you've got to honor you, and she doesn't like it. She tries, she, she has a little tantrum, and he says, uh-uh, you honor your promise. She is, at that point, becoming an orphan. All oh. the familiar things that she hid behind her father, they're letting her down. Her little girl uh, way of encountering the world. And so she lets the frog in, and the frog sits beside her and eats from her plate, and then he says, well, you know, I'm kind of tired, so um, let's go to bed. And she picks him up between her thumb and 
forefinger. You can just imagine it. It carries him into her bedchamber. And he says, uh, I want to sleep as comfortably as you. Let me come and sleep beside you. And some versions say on, on your pillow. Mm-hmm. And she says, well, I don't think so. And he says, well, I'll tell your father. Mm-hmm. And she says, right. And this is the bit that Disney walked around for reasons you can imagine. She picks up the frog, not just between her thumb and forefinger. She picks him up and hurls him at the wall as hard as she can to kill him. And that's the moment when he transforms and becomes a prince. And you think, whoa, what just happened there? She tries to kill him? And I think if you know Disney took that out because cruelty to animals is a bad thing, they don't, etc. But they took out the one really strong action that this princess does. And I think this is terribly important because the princess knows as a young girl becoming a young woman, she knows that she's going to have to share her bed with somebody at some point. Uh But what she does by going against her father's will, by going against the coercion, which would have kept her as an orphan, I'll tell your father if you don't let me come. What she does is she says, I know I've got to be in bed with someone, but it's not going to be a frog. (laughs) In other words, she sticks up for herself. She sticks. She has pride, and that you see is when she becomes worth loving. Otherwise, she is just a pushover, and that is why the prince can change. She learns uh-huh. that she's got self-value. She learns that she has that she she does want something out of life. She's prepared to take a hard action. And she says, no, that's what the pilgrim does. The pilgrim may not know what to say yes to, but the pilgrim always knows what to say no to. That's the teenager for you. Uh, uh, And she takes action. And that is the moment when the prince says, oh, she's got she's got guts. She's got a, a she's a person. She's not just a pretty face. And that allows him to know that she's worth loving and he can change. Now, he's taken a risk. He's been enchanted, we're told. And he's been enchanted by a wicked witch. We're never told quite what for, but we assume he's been enchanted because perhaps the wicked witch has been trying to seduce him, and he's said no. Ha, you have to read between the lines here. Uh And so what he's looking for is a young woman who will be able to say no to what's not acceptable as well. And that will break the spell. He's taking a risk. He doesn't know the spell is going to be broken definitely. He could be killed as a frog. Yeah. But he takes that risk and he says, you know, she's worth it. Let's see what her quality is. Let's see what happens when we push, 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 push her. And she rises to the occasion. And we're then told that they they lie in bed talking. <laughs> which I think is a, is a rather lovely uh, evasion. I'm sure they do talk, <laughs> exchanging their stories. Uh, the next day, the young prince goes and asks the father and says, you know, I want to marry your daughter. Uh, she's obviously progressed from being this little kid in the, in the woodland, uh, uh-huh. away from her parents, into someone who's ready to be married. She, don't, she never says, no, I don't want to marry him. She just 
she wants to we we're we're led to believe and then the bit that everybody misses out which i think is uh, really important then the next day arrives a beautiful carriage with ostrich feathers and eight white horses pulling it and you think wow eight white horses that's a, you can pull a carriage with one horse eight that says something right there every peasant in germany or europe for that matter in the 19th century would have said to pair up eight horses so they all behave and pull together you know in a in, in a uh, a reasonable fashion that means you have chosen well-behaved horses who are matched one's not pulling harder than another and they're being controlled by a, someone who knows how to control the control horses this is a symbol of pairing perfect pairings of these horses these white horses and as the coach rides off drives off the two are sitting in the and there is a there an enormous bang, and the prince says to his coachman, who's called Johannes as well, says, "What what's happening? You know, is the carriage falling to pieces?" And the coachman says, "No," he says, "When you were turned into a frog, I had three iron hoops put around my heart to stop it from breaking." Oh. Wow! Think of the poetry of that. He said, and now, yeah. now my heart swells to see you happy, and the, the the iron band, one iron band, has broken. And you think, oh, you know, this is this is symbolism of a very accessible but very powerful sort. And of course, all three iron bands break, and each time the prince says, "Is the carriage falling to pieces?" And each time the carriage is not their wedding carriage is not falling to pieces, but the bonds are breaking around the servant's heart. And you think, well, what does that tell you? And in that day and age, of course, most people had servants who could afford them. Even the yeah. relatively impecunious had a, a, a maid or a, someone to scrub the dishes. But if your servant loves you like that, it says you're a pretty good person you treat people fairly, and you are worthy of love. Mm -hmm. And so what we see in this story is a twinned tale, because not only does the princess grow up, she grows up to make her declaration and then realize she has to be married, and then she becomes part of the, uh, the monarch pair, and then the magic happens, the, the iron band breaking around, around Johannes's heart, that's the magic that lets you know that love is definitely present. She not only grows to a place of love, but he, the prince, also grows. He's taken a risk. He's, he's, he's staked his life on this young girl. She's risen to the occasion, and now even the servant can see, yes, this is a really first-rate match. This is meant to be. And so when they drive off into the sunset and are happily ever after, it's not just a convenient way of finishing the story. It's actually talking, I think, about the way that two people grow in love with each other and help each other through the stages. 
And when they are in that wonderful, loving place, that magic spreads far and wide. And I, I don't know about oh. you, but I've seen couples and I've sometimes seen couples and I've gone, oh, not those two. And sometimes I've seen couples <laughs> and I've said, wow, you know, there's something happening between those two which is spreading across the whole room and I can feel it from here and others feel it as well. And you know that whatever it is, is magical. It's not controlled by them or willed by them. It's happening because they are who they are and they love each other. And, wow, and, and I think that's, that's, a, <clears throat> that's formidable. And well, it's the sometimes, first tale in the series. Oh yeah, that that definitely sets your stage for sure. <laughs> and yeah, and, well, and you know you 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 go through so many amazing stories here that, and and you know you're able to see the growth and see. Um, how how each stage is replicated in in another part of the story, so that you know now now you have to go and it's not true for all of the stories, but certainly for the ones that you have in in the book, it is. Um, yeah. it makes me want to go back and read read the stories yet again because knowing what you're looking for. Um, you can identify it, and, and the more you can identify it in other places, the more easily you can identify it in your own life, even if you don't want to see it. It's there. <laughs> That's true, even if you don't want to see it. Yes. I mean, these stages exist. Um, they were understood intuitively by generations, hundreds of generations of people before us. And... They are, there is there is powerful advice in many of these tales. Not all of them. Some of them are, you know, slightly scurrilous tales, uh, and some of them are not very, not very uplifting. But the finest of them, like like uh, beautiful gold gold coins that you find scattered across the beach, the finest of them are utterly memorable, and they mm-hmm. they resonate in one's mind in such a way that. One cannot just cast them aside. One says, I want to hear that one again. And since well, what's from, amazing, from, yeah. Yeah, what's amazing is these, these started out as oral stories. And yes. then, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't until much later that they became written down. And, and it, it appears that they, at least with the Grimm's brothers, they, they preserved them as they were told so that... Yeah. Um, Though the rough around the edges, the the uh, the interpretation, the magic, the representation is there for you to see. Um, mm-hmm. What's your favorite story? Uh, actually, my favorite story is probably one that nobody has ever heard of. It's called the Skillful Huntsman. Oh, I love and, that story. Uh, oh, I I I adore that story. Um, it's it's. Extraordinary. Perhaps it's either that one or Hunts My Hedgehog, which, of course, most people say, what? Hunts My Hedgehog? What the heck is that? Uh, <laughs> but The Skillful Huntsman is uh, is a story, again, where both the male who starts off as as as, um, as a, a clockmaker, uh, uh, yes, a watchmaker, and the, uh, the, the 
leading female who is who has been entranced by a, a wicked magician and is now entombed underground. They both grow almost. Uh, well, she's she's no, she's she's. I'm sorry, I'm in, I'm, uh, I'm in error there. In in the skillful huntsman, she is um, condemned by her father to a life of of, uh, of poverty, a bit like Cinderella. Uh, and both of them have a lot of learning to do and a lot of growing to do, and they do it in parallel in the story. So. For me, that is, this is wonderful that in an age that we might look back on and say, oh, the 19th century, terribly sexist, you know, women were ground down. Well, yes, women were ground down, but the stories that the Grimm brothers were preserving were specifically there to empower both men and women. And that, you know, that really, that's, that's a countryman's outlook. I mean, if you thought of... of of what it took to be a woman running a farm in the 19th century. You had to bring up the children. You had to cook the, the food. You had to bake the bread. You had to make the beer. You had to doctor everybody when they got sick. You had to know your herbs and spices. You had to have a wealth of information that today is almost entirely lost to us. A, a woman running a farm might have been uh, not able to control the money, perhaps, uh, legally, but this was, a, this was a powerful figure. This was okay. not a, a shrinking figure, such as perhaps we see more often today, where uh, women are paid less and uh, expected to do everything anyway, like raise all the children. So... Um, you know, this this was a these were stories that spoke to a powerful respect for both men and women. And sometimes people say to me, "Well, you know, they don't talk about homosexuality." Uh, no, I don't think they need to talk about homosexuality because they talk about how you can grow into who you are, no matter uh -huh. whether you're male or female. These are the stages you go go through. It doesn't matter what your sexuality is. It's not specific about that, but it is specific about how to be a mature and reasonable human being. And so, you know, the Grimm brothers knew that they were preserving a body of knowledge that would otherwise be lost and squandered. And they were preserving it in exactly the same way as people today are preserving herbal remedies and uh, trying to preserve things from the Amazon rainforest and rare plants and rare animals and all the rest of it because they know there is more to be learned from this stuff. The Grimm brothers just happened to be doing it with the stories that they felt were powerful. They knew these were powerful, and these were not stories to be cast aside. It was part well, of the cultural uh, identity. Yeah, sorry. And another symbol that, that is in many, many of the stories is that, that you, you you bring up the number three. Um, yes. Three tests, three feathers, mm -hmm. three this, three that. Mm -hmm. And yep. and I I do wonder 
just what was the purpose of the number three. They could have picked any random number, but it almost always yeah. was three. And, of course, three figures in biblical stuff. It figures in, mm-hmm. um, it, it figures in every culture. What was mm-hmm. the purpose of it? What do you think? was meant by the utilization of of the number three over and over and over again. Yes. Uh, Well, the number three is a very interesting number because it's one of the, uh, I'm sure many people will know about numerology. It's one of the the powerful numbers uh, that exist, not quite perhaps as powerful as seven, which is a mystical number, but three, as you've already mentioned, the Trinity. We have the whole idea of good, better, best, uh, it's written into our language, and it seems pretty likely that the whole idea of the number three was uh, linked to the idea that one is the male number, two is the female number, and the combination of the two makes the number three. So it's the perfect balance of male and female stereotypically uh, envisioned. And I think that what, that's what lies actually behind some of the symbolism of the Trinity, because you have you know, the Father and the Son, and something that exists between them, that is of them, the Holy Ghost, and all three together are all one thing. So three was a number of wholeness. It's also a very convenient mm-hmm. number, because if something happens once, it's you know it's a random event if it happens twice you can say well it's a coincidence but if it happens three times it's a pattern so let me give you a specific example of this um we all know i think uh, um, uh snow white which uh, was disneyfied and changed horribly uh, but it makes, I mean, I love the movie, I, but I'm not pretending it has anything to do with what we're talking about today. Um, <laughs> but Snow, uh, Snow White undergoes three tests, uh, just like, as we've heard a little earlier, you heard me talking about the young king in Faithful Johannes. He undergoes three tests, the, the horse, the clothing, and his wife, the perceived insult to his wife. Well, Disney took out these tests, um, and he just reduced them to one. Well, the first test that Snow White gets is when the Wicked Queen disguises herself as a peddler, and she says, um, you know, why don't you have this lovely comb, my dear? And she, Snow White puts it in her hair, and it's a poisoned comb, and she falls down as if dead, and the dwarves come back and remove it, and she revives. And you think, okay, a comb, a comb. Well, that's all about looking good, isn't it? A comb is either something you use to straighten your hair, or in Spain, of course, you keep it in your hair as an ornamental uh, attribute. So here is this little kid being introduced to looking good. Isn't it interesting that this is the person who tries to kill her is the woman who looks in the mirror, a narcissist, and says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all. She's trying to kill her stepdaughter using the weapons that she knows to do with cosmetics and pride and narcissism. Well, it doesn't work because the little dwarfs come back and say, we're not having any of that here. 
The second time Snow White is tempted with lace, laces for her, uh, we're told the laces for her stays. And you think, well, what's that about? Well, stays were basically corsets, and laces were often brightly colored, and they were laced at the back. And the idea of these corsets was that they were they uh, made women look slimmer at terrible, terrible cost to their inner organs, but they also worked in the same way as basically a push-up bra. That they pushed the 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 body so to make the breasts look larger. Um, this is sexualizing Snow White. So there she is sexualized uh, and she falls down uh, in a swoon because these t- these laces are too tight it's a way of saying I think that she's not ready to be sexual, she's a little girl still and the third test um, is uh, the apple the poisoned apple and every single German in uh, within 500 miles of that story would be saying the apple, the Garden of Eden, sexual temptation. Yeah. Uh, you know, three tests, each one more severe than the, the, the previous one. Good, better, best. Bad, worse, worst. I think it, that's what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is amazing that that <clears throat> we see the three all the time, and, and it it. I think in our lives, too, you can probably identify times when a test of some sort comes to you and you rec- you know, it, you experience it the first time, the second time you think, well, this is a test, and eh, maybe not, <laughs> and, the third time, and the third time it's like, okay, I got my point, you know. And, and yes, <laughs> it, 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 I can't ignore it, it this time. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it does. does happen. It, and, and I think that probably... Um, I, I, I would imagine that, that as you apply these kind of um, archetypes and these kind of um, experiences to the people that you work with, you you must see a lot of those aha moments where somebody will recognize, yeah. well, dang, you know, that's yeah. exactly <laughs> what was happening. And and sometimes when you when you when you see your life put in these kind of terms, it's easier to admit that. Yeah, I messed up. Look at that, you know. And mm, and you know, mm. I I will avoid that next time. I will recognize it before I I I, I get too much, get too deeply into it, so that it's difficult to get out. So that I I think that what you've got here is is phenomenal. And and I know you have many other books, and I certainly. Uh, advise people to check them out but but you know don't miss the princess the frog and the ugly sisters because <laughs> it, it, it's just such a delightful journey and and to sit back and say oh my gosh i have told this story i've listened to this story and i never saw the relevance to it mm. and mm. i uh, consider myself well read and the the fact that I had actually read these in their well in in the Grimm brothers form and and not I read them and I thought, My gosh, these are dark, you know fairy, mm. there are no fairies in them there are no, no. I, 
<laughs> no fairies at all. <laughs> so, they can't I be fairy stories without fairies. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I kept looking for Tinkerbell and she wasn't there. You know, uh, and, and 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 it was it was like at first disappointing, and then you almost had to keep reading because the stories have a message, and even if you didn't see it or recognize mm. it, it was imprinted within you so that at yes. some point in time in your long, 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 long life, mm. you're, you're going to recognize the symbology that was there and, and hopefully apply it to your life. Mm, yes. Oh, how beautifully you put it. You know, we can recognize ourselves in these tales. Uh and and people do. I mean, I work with, with folks uh, at all levels, and very often I say, well, it's a little bit like this tale. Have you thought about this? And they go, ooh, wow. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. And being able to see an, an aspect of your life in a tale is is much easier than having somebody saying, you know what you're doing wrong, you're doing this, this, this. You know, nobody likes oh. that. But to read the tale and go, oh, that's a little bit like what I tend to do. I'll tell you a little story well, there because, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah, you got, you got uh, time. Is, go ahead. Okay. Uh, and that is um, when I first uh, got interested in the tales, um, uh, I, I said, you know, I, I've been looking at these tales. And uh, a young woman said to me, oh, yeah, yeah, the frog, the frog prince. She got the title wrong. She said, yeah, that's the one where it says you, you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince. And I said, no, no, she doesn't kiss the frog. She tries to kill it. So, and I said, and the message is that I want to tell you today, if you want more frogs in your life, go ahead and kiss them because that's what you'll get. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, huh? You know, she doesn't kiss yeah. the frog? I said, no, you don't want a frog in your life. You want a prince. Well, go out and, fight and and reject those frogs. And suddenly she said, Yeah, yeah oh, but don't kill them. Don't kill them. Yeah, don't kill them. No, don't kill them. <laughs> Please don't kill them. Re- reject them, though. In other words, if you, if, you, if you keep dating the same losers, you're going to keep getting the same results. And this young woman, yeah. God bless her, she sort of turned pale and scurried away. And I thought, oh, she got it. She got what the message yep. was. Hopefully, hopefully. I mean, there, there, <laughs> I is, so. there, there is, there, there is such wonderful wisdom in all of these, in all of these stories, and, and I love the archetypes. Yeah, I mean, they aren't, they aren't Jung's or Freud's, but I like them. I like them better, I think. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it, 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 it makes it easier to relate to your own life, and. And the fact that you know, once you've hit a platform or or a or a you know, once you've gone from innocent to orphan to the pilgrim, you know, that's that's where I see a lot of people. You know, they've gotten to pilgrim and they're not sure how to go beyond mm-hmm. pilgrim, and yeah. it takes courage. I mean, this yes, is growing up. This is this is yeah. coming into your own as a as a mature, hopefully reasonable adult. And it, it's life is not a fairy tale. It's a wonderful journey, though, and it does have magic in it if you get to the right place in the right part and, and you find that balance within. 
which is so amazing. Um, we're we're down to our last few minutes here, so um, oh, okay. yeah, this went fast, didn't it? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm so happy to, to hear your lovely comments because you really you really do get what I'm hoping to convey here, and it's, that's just marvelous. It's wonderful. So uh, you put it so beautifully. Oh well, I'm gonna I'm gonna analyze everybody I meet now. Are you an innocent, an orphan, <laughs> pilgrim, or where are you on this scale here? Um, but but uh, you well. have <laughs> you know it's you know there are some days that I I go back to innocent and just let the world go by. But yeah, but yeah. Um, I think that that you know you have such a a charmingly wonderful message here, and it's a way people can absolutely identify where they are in this progression, and and help to promote action to go to the next level. So it's you know you aren't um, you aren't helpless in this journey. You are in control of this journey, and you just have yeah. to have the courage. To, to take those steps which are which are profound um, do you have um, a website that we can promote here so we can send people your way sure yeah um, my my website is alan hunter a hunter all one word dot net and that will get to me and you'll see the things that I've been doing and uh, I'm working on um, and that's probably the easiest way to find out where I am. I have some YouTube videos at uh, Dr. Alan Hunter, Dr. Alan Hunter is my channel on, on YouTube, where I talk about many things, including archetypes and memoir, uh, memoir writing, because I work with people to write their memoirs, and yes, they go through the archetypal stages. Uh, <laughs> uh, so those are two really good good places to track me down. Well, and you also have a number of books all on Amazon, and I'm going to uh, yes. pick out another one and get you back on here to um, to get you to explain more about going through this oh, process of, of growth. Be delighted to, so, yes. Well, I, I've yes. had such a lovely time with it. I can't wait to read another one. So I will <laughs> certainly, I will certainly be in touch with you and see if we can't get you back here and and help people understand oh, how to progress through these different stages because, this, of course, I love the fairy tales. But, um, mm, mm. but you know, if you can approach your life as a fairy tale, it's a lot more fun. It is a lot more fun, yes. <laughs> well, so I, think, I, I, uh, I, I do, I, I do thank you. This, this show shuts off immediately, so I don't want to cut oh, okay. you off. But, but no. I have to cut you off. <laughs> You have um, to cut me I off, wanna... and I and I, I will say thank you, thank you so much for for chatting with me this evening and uh, for your wonderful comments. And I feel feel this is just time has flown by. So thank you. Oh, you're so very welcome, and and I look forward to getting you back here again. Um, so let me mm. say good good night and goodbye to everybody. Thank you so much for sharing your time, sharing your your energies with us, and uh, I hope you took notes. I hope you look for Alan Hunter on Amazon and all of his amazing books. And I will, I'm going to get him back here so that we can pump him for more wonderful insight and information. Thanks so much, everybody, for sharing your time. I know how precious it is, and I'm so very grateful that you do share with us. Uh, if you like what you've heard, please go to the YouTube channel 
And if you're so inclined, subscribe to it. We absolutely like to collect those numbers. They make us uh, a little more um, accessible to those people who subscribe and to those people that are looking for good, wise, wonderful things like fairy tales and archetypes. So good night, everybody. Thanks again for being here.